Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an OSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. I think it's important when we think about crafting solutions that we're very clear what is the problem we're trying to solve and what is the value added, if you will. So we could talk about totally revising our court system, but until and unless we're ready to do that, I think it's really important for people to acknowledge that lawyers have a really important role in shaping the culture of courts and in getting the courts to follow the law that's already on the books and to getting the courts to change the law that's on the books through the development of legal precedent. And I think None of those are things that technology can do for us. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. Thanks to TV shows like Law & Order, we all know that if someone is arrested and charged with a crime, that they have a right to an attorney, and if they cannot afford one, one will be appointed. However, the same right does not exist for people facing life-upending civil matters like an eviction. In this episode, we're going to learn about what's being done to change this by hearing from those fighting for a right to civil counsel. To learn more, I'm joined by three guests. John Pollock is the coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. Catherine Sabbath is an associate professor of law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Hazel Remish is a supervising attorney at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Hazel, I wanted to start with you. Last year, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland ran a right to counsel program in eviction court. And from what I understand before the program, only about 1% of people facing eviction had an attorney in Cleveland. However, in December, we found out in the first six months of this program that you're a part of, it prevented 93% of evictions, uh, which, I mean, to be honest, sounds too good to be true. So I wanted to start off by figuring out what is it that you're up to in Cleveland and how is it working? In October of 2019, Cleveland became um, the fourth city in the country at that time and the first in the Midwest to pass a right to counsel ordinance, which provides legal representation for tenants who are facing eviction in Cleveland Housing Court. At the time, there was about roughly 9,000 evictions that were being filed every single year. And just how you identified, only 1% of tenants were going into court with an attorney. Most of those cases, that 1%, were being were cases that were handled by legal aid attorneys. So the program, um, the, the ordinance passed in October, and it became effective July 1st, 2020, so right in the middle of the pandemic, um, as everyone was still adjusting to a, a, new, a new way of living. Um, And so we launched the program July 1st, um, really did everything remotely. Um, At that point, we were under a stay-at-home order. Um, And in the first six months of of the program, our outcomes show that 93% of the clients that we represented um, were able to avoid eviction or involuntary displacement. So that means that if they chose not to move, um, they were able to remain in their homes. So tell me a little bit more about this program, because I mean, the idea of providing an attorney for everybody that qualifies uh, and facing an an eviction, especially during a pandemic where people are losing their jobs, there's more economic hardship than even in a a normal bad year. Um, It sounds like a lot of resources are required to make this a reality. What's the cost of this program and, and how is it being paid for? Cleveland's program is a little bit different than some of the other jurisdictions um, that have passed right to counsel. So our program focuses on families with children 
who are at 100% of the federal poverty guidelines. Um, and so those, that's the population that we're serving under Cleveland's program. The budget for the pro program is roughly about $2 million. So you're right that there are a lot of resources that go into this. Um, and the funding source is pretty diverse in that the city of Cleveland has contributed, but we also have, um, it's really a public-private partnership in that right now, the funding is coming from a lot of foundations as well. Um, and so the idea being that long-term, um, it needs to be publicly funded, but this is one way to get it off the ground. John, Hazel, uh, gave us a sense of where, where Cleveland is at, but this is not just a Cleveland program and it's not just an eviction issue. I was wondering if you could give us maybe a landscape view of what this um, right to civil counsel looks like across the country. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I, I think it's worth just saying first that it, it takes some resources to provide a right to counsel. It takes substantial resources not to provide a right to counsel. And I, that really is worth saying here. When cities and states don't provide a right to counsel, they don't save that money. They just spend it in different and worse ways. They spend it on homeless shelters. They spend it on uh, emergency medical care. They spend it on foster care. They spend it on mental, other mental health issues. They spend it on unemployment. All of these are consequences of eviction and, uh, and, and homelessness also potentially. So it really does need to be understood in that context. It, it, yes, there is an investment, but the money is, is being spent already just in ways that are much less productive. So in terms of the right to counsel nationally, the Supreme Court, as you alluded to earlier, has provided a right to counsel in criminal cases. It did so uh, quite a while ago and, and actually expanded that right um, over many decades to include more and more kinds of criminal cases. But it hasn't shown the same receptivity to a right to counsel in civil cases, even though some of the matters that it considered, like a person permanently losing their parental rights to the state and a person who went to jail in a civil proceeding, it said that those did not entitle the people to counsel, which I think would really surprise people to hear. Fortunately, the states themselves have, have gone much farther than the, uh, than the Supreme Court, and basically they are allowed to do so under their own state constitutions, under their, you know, using state legislative law, and they provided a right to counsel in quite a number of different kinds of cases. Where we haven't um, had a lot of traction at the state level is in housing up to now. But as Hazel said, Cleveland was city number four. We now have seven cities that have a right to counsel. And this session, eight states are looking at legislation to provide a right to counsel, of which some of those have already gotten quite far through the legislative process. So we've done, actually, we've had quite a good amount of progress on right to counsel nationally in many areas. And now we're seeing housing starting to catch up with where we've you know, been in some of these other civil areas too. And what are you seeing generally speaking, like when a jurisdiction passes a right to civil counsel, regardless of, of what it's covering, is this something that expands the existing legal aid system? Is this a separate program? Is it some type of combination of the two? What are you seeing? There's no definitive answer to how it has to be. It really is up to each jurisdiction to decide the best way to implement a right to counsel. Civil legal aid providers generally are the ones who have responded to a right to counsel because they are the ones who do eviction defense right now. In other civil areas actually, uh, like family law, like mental health, it's often the public defenders that do it, which again would surprise people to know that public defenders do a lot of civil representation. Uh, and that's because they already have a statewide structure in place. 
so that's part of the reason why they've sort of been tasked with a lot of that. But with housing, uh, most of the public defender programs, most of them don't do housing. And so it makes a lot more sense when we're talking about evictions for that to be the civil legal aid providers that, that handle those matters. Interesting. Now, Catherine, I want to bring you into the conversation. John artfully uh, made the argument that this is uh, very much a, a poverty and an economic issue. Um, but a lot of your writing is around how the right to civil counsel is also a gender issue. Uh, and I'm curious if you could outline how that's the case. Sure. Thank you. So, um, so yes, I, I think that's a really important element for folks to keep in mind. Um, particularly when comparing the idea of spending money on a rights council versus on something else. It's, I think it's important for people to think about this as a racial justice and a gender justice issue. And um, I, I think it's a, I, there's a few things that I mean by that. Um, so we know that individuals in our legal system who do not have lawyers are disproportionately poor people of color. And that is true on the criminal side and the civil side. But the difference between the criminal and the civil side is it's overwhelmingly women of color. Excuse me, it's, it's disproportionately women of color. And, and, and this is one area in particular where the criminal justice system is now recognized as a system in which men of color are overrepresented, particularly black men. And there's been a lot of really important research done on the racial injustice of the criminal justice system and more broadly on the failures of the criminal justice system. And there's been a lot less research on the failures of the civil justice system. And I really think that has something to do with the fact that it is women in those systems. And so um, this is something I've written about before, particularly in the context of housing. I've written a few articles about this. And, and most recently, I have a new article that looks at it more broadly and says, you know, if you look at the biggest areas in which we see civil litigants coming to court by themselves, debt, eviction, and family law, it's, it's disproportionately women. Um, and I, you know, we could talk if it's if it's useful about why women are overrepresented in each of those areas. Um, but I, I think that's an important thing for people to think about um, because we we know that the right to counsel is about equality. You know, John alluded before to some of the Supreme Court decisions about the right to counsel on the criminal side. And it really was and is motivated by a sense of equality. I mean, even Gideon versus Wainwright, which is the one case that you know folks most associate with this area, Gideon was, like many of the decisions of its time, Gideon was a decision in which the justices were aware of the racial justice impact of their decision, that the court was aware that it was making a decision within a social context and that they were providing a protection to individuals who were at risk of being abused by state actors on the other side. And when it comes to the justice issues disproportionately facing women, women of color, it doesn't seem to be that the court has been as concerned. As John Pollock uh, mentioned, one of the biggest cases of that um, in which folks were disappointed by the Supreme Court was the case of Ms. Lassiter, an African-American woman whose infant was taken away from her um, by Durham County Department of Social Services. Um, and the court said, 
the right to be a parent is important, but it's not quite as important. Um, and I, I can't help but see the gender dynamic of that decision. I would just add too that we, we have new data now um, that came from Matt Desmond and others about the gender of people in housing court finding that black women in particular are twice as likely to face eviction. That's data that we've always generally known but didn't have quantified until recently. And, and that having that data is extraordinarily helpful to making the Rex equity argument. And then during the pandemic, the census has been asking people, are you behind on rent? Are you able to make next month's rent? And consistently throughout the entire pandemic, people of color are twice as likely to say they aren't able to make rent and are, and are um, behind on rent. And that, that really is uh, incredibly valuable data to have. It really, it's just undeniable and stark information. And one thing that's really telling about it is that as things have gotten better at times during the pandemic, for everyone, that gap has remained the same size that, you know, it hasn't shrunk as a result of, you know, whether, you know, infections have gone down or more relief has poured out the door. We've just seen that be th true throughout the pandemic. I would just add on the issue of data that, I mean, it's true, Matt, Desmond's work has really opened up the opportunity to have certain conversations that I will just admit that these are issues that many of us thought about, but we didn't quite have something we could use. You know, I mean, for a while, I sort of wanted to make certain arguments, but I didn't have the data and I don't think the audience was there yet, you know? And so, and then once that came out, then I was able to write, you know, Housing Defense as the New Gideon and the under enforcement of um, poor tenants' rights and really talk about it as a gender issue. And it was sort of taken seriously as such. And I think one other piece of the story is that while we have enterprising, smart academics able to do some of this research when they have the resources to do it, the fact is that Matt Desmond's work also requires a lot of resources. And something that we might want to think about as a society is why are the courts not keeping some of this data and making some of this data available? Because frankly, we do a much better job on the criminal side of having the court system make and keep some of this material rather than individual academics being responsible for it. Well, and the, the data point is interesting and, and could justify a whole nother podcast, but it, it brings me to the role of technology right now in the access to justice space. And this was something sparked uh, by uh, an article you wrote, Catherine, um, Simplicity and Justice, I think it was called from a few years ago. Um, and it kind of struck me, I spend, when not hosting this podcast, I spend my time thinking about how technology can impact the access to justice gap in the criminal justice system. And uh, there's a stark contrast, I feel like, between the right to counsel movement and the world that I usually inhabit, where I, on the right to counsel side, you, it's a more expensive process. It relies on a slower, more traditional process, while on the technology side, we see promises of inexpensive, faster, and often less formal paths to resolution of legal problems. Uh, I, I guess to ask broadly, like, is the right to counsel preferable to some of these faster whiz-bang technological proposals that we see out there right now gaining steam? So I think it's important when we think about crafting solutions that we're very clear what is the problem we're trying to solve and what is the value added, if you will. So, you know, um, and that piece that, that you're referring to, simplicity as justice, is one in which I was responding to advocates who are very well-meaning, 
and are trying to come up with realistic solutions to the access to justice problem and feel that there are not sufficient resources for lawyers, that lawyers are expensive. And so they say, what else is out there? Can we use technology or in some situations, can we use something short of um, lawyers? Could we find other people to do some of this work? And it's not that I am of the view that none of those things should exist, but I think it's really important for us to be thoughtful about what those things can do and what they can't do. So some of the things that they can't do that are important um, has to do with the way lawyers uh, function in our court system. And we could talk about totally revising our court system, but until and unless we're ready to do that, I think it's really important for people to acknowledge that lawyers have a really important role in shaping the culture of courts and in getting the courts to follow the law that's already on the books and to getting the courts to change the law that's on the books through the development of legal precedent. And I think none of those are things that technology can do for us. And I think, you know, sometimes people talk about developing, say, a program whereby a tenant could go online and develop their own answer in an eviction case. And that, you know, I think there, there may be a place for that. There are, for example, certain issues that seem to come up in a lot of eviction cases, like a lot of poor people being evicted face substandard conditions. So the idea that we should have a form complaint for that is not an inherently bad idea, it's a reasonable idea. But I, I think it's important for us to understand that arming a tenant with that form answer doesn't resolve all the other issues at play when we have 90% of the landlords represented and 90% of the tenants unrepresented. I don't think having that form is... Um, is really what we mean when we say we're trying to create a justice system, that we're trying to improve justice. Um, I guess the, the one other thing I, that I would just add is that on the issue of expense, I think um, people are very interested with some good reason um, in efficiency. But again, I feel like there's a misuse of that term. When we talk about efficiency, the idea is that you're you're getting more for your money, but more of what, right? And what are the costs really, we're really talking about? Something being fast doesn't make it efficiently inherently if you're not getting anything from it, right? I mean, I think we all know that, right? So I think... Um, it's important that if we're, you, you could have the eviction cases go really, really quickly. We could just abolish any and all rights for tenants and not mm -hmm. give them any opportunity to speak at all. That would be, if speed is our goal, you know, there are many ways to do that, sure. right? So I, I guess, um, I think when we're talking about costs, it's real important also to think broadly about costs for whom, because I think there's an assumption that in you know in the in the US legal system there's an assumption that each party on each side must pay their own costs and 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 that is not necessarily the case that is not a law of nature um and I, I think there are um other systems that people have used and and in this country as well there are other systems that exist so for example we have fee-shifting statutes in certain areas of law that have been determined by legislatures to be in the public interest, it's been created as a matter of statute that the prevailing plaintiff will have their attorney's fees paid by 
the bad actor on the other side, the defendant. Um, and one might now, of course, that particular system works better for um, encouraging litigation on you know, protecting and supporting the litigation on the on the plaintiff side. So it depends on what the issue is. But uh, it's just one example of how we may be able to think more broadly about how to assign the costs than simply to think of it as everyone's responsible for their own. And if we can come up with some charity money, we can give it to the side that seems sure. to be struggling. I want to get Hazel in here. Uh, going back to the kind of the, the slower, more traditional right to counsel method as opposed to the technological solution. Now, your program came a part of a grant application. Uh, that I understand, uh, as, as we talked about, um, that look to impact poverty uh, in the area of Cleveland. Uh, were you all considering or weighing other projects at the time? And, and if so, how did Right to Counsel play out uh, as, the, as the winner in that discussion? Just to give a little background, um, Right to Counsel in Cleveland initially started as there was a fellowship program for a local foundation, the Sisters of Charity of Cleveland, that were looking for ideas that would have a high impact on poverty. And they had a call for ideas throughout the whole city. So many people applied for different ideas and different projects that came out of that. Um, we put forth an application that included both right to counsel and a process to seal eviction records, seeing that as a barrier to um, have tenants be futurely, you know, have housing in the future. And so that's where the idea came from. Um, we, you know, very much contemplated along with John things like, um, you know, a lawyer for a day model versus full on legal representation. Uh, do, you know, do we put um, paralegals in the courthouse? Is that an effective way to sort of get more of a bang for your buck? Um, I think to Catherine's point um, and really ultimately landed it when we looked at the data um, that the most effective and the most, um, the way that we were gonna get the best outcomes was if we had a full on legal representation model so that meant that, you know, tenants were being served from the beginning of their case to the end. Um, and I think back to your technology question, Jason, one of the things that we've seen, um, you know, at least from my perspective, is the eviction process itself is meant to be speedy. It, it's meant to churn out cases. It's already designed that way. And when you add technology on top of that, you're just speeding that process up even more. Um, and you're creating additional barriers that normally an attorney can slow down the process a bit. So things like how does somebody present evidence on a Zoom call? Um, how, do, how, do you, how do you know if the notice that is being put up to the screen is in fact the notice that was served on that tenant? Um, how does somebody who doesn't have technology access that hearing? Um, There's so many barriers that have, that have presented now as a result of technology and it's not all a bad thing, um, but there are a lot more barriers, which has now shifted the role of what an attorney can do and provide. And it has actually made it even more important so that, attorney, so that attorneys can present that evidence on behalf of their clients. So that if there are things like the CDC moratorium or other rights that a tenant has, it's the, it's the, it's the attorney who's advocating on, on their behalf. Um, if there is a barrier to technology, it's the attorney who can facilitate that. So the role of the attorney has really shifted as we've looked at technology in the, in the face of COVID um, and in COVID times, as, and specifically as we in Cleveland have been launching this program. John, I want to um, shift the conversation a little bit, because one of the things I was thinking about a lot is this is 
as far as the successes are concerned, the, the list is still small. We can consider a lot of these projects still in pilot. It's a, it's a movement that's growing at the moment. And, and one of the things I noticed when researching for this show is that uh, the places that have done this, Cleveland, D.C., uh, New York City, California, New Jersey, they all have a version of this in some capacity. Um, they're all Democratic-leaning. And I'm curious to know if the right to civil counsel can become a bipartisan issue. Well, I will be happy to answer that question, but I do feel compelled to say one quick word about technology first, uh, which sure. is that oftentimes I think the civil right to counsel movement is perceived as antithetical to technology or self-help solutions. And that really is not the case. We are a data-driven movement. And the reason why we support right to counsel is, as Hazel was saying, is that the data has showed over and over and over again that full representation transforms outcomes. What we don't have is the, the, in the data that technology transforms outcomes. The most that we've seen is that technology helps people participate, but participation is a lot different than actual meaningful participation. The goal is not simply to get just get people to show up. It's actually to get them to show up and meaningfully participate in the proceedings. And you know, even when it's come to some lesser forms of representation, like Hazel referred to, limited scope, lawyer for the day, one of the studies that really opened my eyes is actually uh, one that was done by one of Catherine's co-authors, Jessica Steinberg, who looked at uh, proceedings in California and found that that those who got limited scope, lawyer for the day kind of assistance had tremendous results in terms of not defaulting, had tremendous results in terms of asserting a defense, a defense in court. But when she went further and said what actually happened to those tenants, she found that asserting a defense just alone made no difference. It actually had no effect whatsoever on whether they succeeded. Um, and in fact, you know, they were evicted, they basically lost you know, their um, possession at the same rate, they, they paid the same amount of money, they had the same amount of time to move. It didn't make any difference in terms of the outcomes in their case. Whereas counsel, you know, had a two or three times multiplier effect on the results, full representation. So I think with, with all of these interventions, our, our answer is always, if you can show that, you know, access to technology, whether it's a chatbot or forms or anything, has that same impact on the proceedings, then we would be the first to say, of course, we should be looking at how to implement this. Why would we, we're not protective of counsel just because of its lawyers, we're protective of it because we know it works. That's the reason we focus on it. So, so going back to your uh, original question, um, I think the first thing to say about that is that the right to counsel issue has, has you know, been bipartisan in many of the other areas that we work in besides housing, and I'll get to housing in a moment. But if you look at where reform has happened on family law, civil forfeiture, um, civil incarceration, you know, you see cities and states in the South that are working on this and states that have passed a right to counsel in some of these areas. It's not just the states that you would expect. In fact, on our website, which we have, you know, legislative tracking of all the bills that are filed every year, there are, you know, over 150 of them. Many of those are in the states in the South and the Midwest and the Southwest. They're not confined to the East and West Coast at all. With respect to housing, the Places that have passed right to counsel so far may be more what you might consider for usual suspects. But if you look at places where bills are pending right now, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Carolina, these are not your usual suspect states. And, and are these bills that are in those states, are, are they are there co-sponsors bipartisan or is it just being put up by the Democratic caucus? 
You know, that's a great question. I think, you know, you still may generally see um, more democratic leaning bills. Um, I know that there's work to get more bipartisan support. And even if the bill isn't sponsored by, um, by Republicans necessarily, we're not, what we're not hearing is by that, that opposition coming from the right. In fact, what we often hear from the Republican members of the House and Senate in a state is that they actually have no problem with right to counsel at all. They, they um, when we're looking at some of the larger housing reform bills, right to counsel is a piece that they don't generally object to. In fact, nationally, I would say, from the time that I started in 2009 to now, we've really seen a significant shift politically on right to counsel, especially in housing. I don't think we hear as much of the ideological objection to tenants having counsel or that it won't make a difference or that it, it's a bad idea for the courts or any of that. We really don't hear much of that anymore. It's just about the money. That's the only concern that we really hear from the right consistently about this issue. You know, There are exceptions, of course, but we have seen a real paradigm shift in terms of more bipartisan support for the concept of tenants having counsel. Um, one of the things I found kind of fascinating in, in preparing for the show uh, was the way language is used in, in this movement. Um, and Hazel, I wanted to start with you. I mean, notably throughout the show, we've been talking about this issue as a right and not a program. Uh, why is this distinction important to you and your advocacy? It's really important that, that it's a right and not a pilot or some program, um, you know, mostly because political um, environments change, um, funding structures change. Um, and so it's really critical that for it to survive changes in mayors, for example, or changes in council, uh, council persons, um, that it be a right and not a program. Um, you know, one of the things that we certainly contemplated was in Cleveland was initially we thought we'll do it as a pilot because we needed to prove the case. We needed to show that there was a return on investment. We needed to get the data um, in order to make, um, to show the community that this was something worth investing in. Um, but our council members were really, um, you know, very focused on this is the right thing to do um, and they wanted to do it. And so we shifted pretty quickly from doing it as a pilot um, into a right um, which is the way that it ultimately was um, passed as an ordinance. Um, but it was really important because of specifically for that reason, so that if you know political will change in the future, it would survive any administration. the The other language issue that came up for me, uh, and, and it's come up through through the show as well, is you know we talk about this as a right to civil counsel, or and sometimes it's called civil Gideon reference to the aforementioned Supreme Court case, creating a right to counsel in criminal matters. And these things make sense to all of us that are either in the poverty advocacy space or went to law school. Uh, but it doesn't strike me as terminology that has like a broad public appeal. So John, I'm curious, like, does the, the very branding of like, right to civil counsel have a marketing problem if we're going to try to build a coalition, a broad coalition of people that care about this topic? You know, that's a great question. I think that, you know, th as you said, that there's been different terminology used throughout the, the years. And uh, civil. I think one of the reasons why civil right to counsel works is because of the phrase civil right. You know, even I think that what we're really getting at here, and I think another part of Hazel's, you know, of the analysis that Hazel's providing is, is, you know, it's a right because we recognize that this is substantially important. It's something basic to what people need to protect. We don't have a right to housing and we should. Um, and until we do, this right is what's going to 
what we have to try to protect that most fundamental need that people have to housing. So that concept of a civil right is something that people do understand. And I think they hear it that way. Um, it's true that the word council sometimes trips people up. They may not know what that means exactly. Um, and the term civil Gideon actually was used for a, a, quite a while because the term, because Gideon was a case that people had heard of before, a lot of people had heard. The problem it created is that it created an impression that the movement was seeking to provide a right to counsel all at once for everyone in every civil area across the country in a single swoop, which is not what we're trying to do by a long shot. We, we have a very incremental state-by-state, issue-by-issue approach. So that term was has really been sort of shifted away from because it was not giving the right impression about what we're trying to do. But what we do know uh, in terms of public opinion is that there has been polling done that's looked at what the public thinks about a right to counsel um, and whether they put it as a right to counsel or said, do you think that you know, people should have a right to a lawyer when they're losing these things? Um, and the support is overwhelmingly there you know, in a bipartisan manner. In fact, most recently, Data for Progress did a survey specifically about eviction and found that there was majority support from both Democrats and Republicans on right to counsel for tenants facing eviction. In, in the last couple of minutes, I, I wanted us to look forward. And what's happening, I think one of the things that amazed me when looking at where this issue has been in just the last five years is just the amount of success it's had after after years of a building it seems like the cracks in the dam are, are beginning to appear as mentioned seven cities multiple states are considering uh passing similar laws um so catherine i'll start with you and, and then pass up the torch to everyone else where do you think we're going to be in another five years on this topic like is this just the beginning um where, where do you, what do you think happens well, I, you know, it's it's funny you you say that about the, about sort of how much has changed because really, I mean, I will tell you, like when I wrote, I will tell you when I wrote the article, "Housing Defense is the New Gideon." I really thought I was writing about something that was going to be treated as a fantasy and not a reality. When I was writing it, there was not yet a right to counsel anywhere, and it just so happened that then New York City started there changed their law. And, and then the article came out and people thought that was, I wrote the article quickly and I, that's not true. I just, you know, got really lucky and, and you know, we all got really lucky. And this is about 2016, of, right? Um, New York City passed its right to counsel in 2017. 17. Okay. okay thank yeah. you. Okay. Um, but anyway, so, so, but really, but, to, but to go to your, to your question about the future and sort of what uh, can we hope for in the future or expect in the future, I'll, I'll just mention two areas in which I would like to see us thinking more. Um, one is that I think a lot of us imagine the right to counsel to be something that people need, particularly when they're facing off against a state actor, against the government, the government dragging you into court because uh, they're going to put you in jail, or um, you know, if they some, for example, in the in the parental termination case where the state is taking away your right to be a parent. And there's a, there are a variety of other examples, right? And I think people are most likely to respond to the idea that if the state's going to take certain 
uh, if the state's going to deprive you of certain liberties that you should have a right to counsel and that makes sense to people but i guess one area i'd like us to talk and think more about and try to push for is thinking about private actors with enormous amounts of power and the role of economic power not just physical force and so i think that housing is a great example because it's one of the areas where we're talking about private actors on the other side and we're talking about the abuse of economic power and i think that particularly given the privatization of so many areas of our lives, it's really important to start thinking about uh, restricting abuses of private power. And the one other thing I'll just say quickly is that we also have focused so much on providing a right to counsel for defendants, which I think, again, makes sense because we're talking about people being dragged into court without any support. But I would ideally like to see us start thinking about ways to support individuals um, to do affirmative work or even to do some non-litigation work. Because if what we're worried about really is social outcomes, say preserving affordable and safe housing, there needs to be support to address issues like substandard conditions and sexual harassment and discrimination from, from the other side as well. So I, you know, I, I've written a little bit about this, but I think that we're so used to providing lawyers the idea that we should provide lawyers to poor people when they're defendants. But the reality is that being a defendant means you're already in a pretty precarious position a lot of the time. So I would love to see one day us thinking about providing lawyers to, te to people in, in other positions as well. John, what about you? Uh, where, where do you see us in five years? I think that, you know, the sky's the limit right now. And I, th I think that, you know, where I see the housing movement, you know, I think we're going to have in five years, I think we're going to have a number of states that have enacted a right to counsel by then. Um, I, it's impossible to even guess how many, but we just keep getting more calls from additional lawmakers and, um, and tenant organizers and attorneys and saying, we want to be next. We want to join this. We see the train is leaving. We want to be there. And what really, I think, um, has changed the game is that Congress has provided some money, some federal stimulus money um, that isn't, hasn't been talked about a lot. It wasn't specifically for tenant representation, but is available for that, that can really help those jurisdictions that have just been stuck on the money and really have no, you know, are completely on board with doing this, but just have been there, but for the money, that that money be there, maybe the thing that pushes us over the line to start having, you know, the dominoes really starting to fall. And, uh, you know, the other part of it is, just the, the increasing quarters that we talk to that are interested in this, tenant organizers change the game on right to counsel. I cannot, it cannot be stressed enough that without them, we wouldn't be here on the housing right now. They changed the game in New York, in San Francisco, in Boulder, you know, in so many of the places they were the ones who got the right to counsel done. And that increase, that interest is, is just really dramatically increasing. It's, you know, the, it's the tenant-based groups, it's the democratic socialists, it's the ACLU, we're just hearing all of these groups, these you know, local-based groups saying, we want in on this movement. We want to push this forward in addition to the lawmakers. Even the Federal Reserve, you know, a lot of groups that we you know, normally were not really working with are now saying like, we're interested in this issue. We want to meet and talk about how we can help advance this. So, so nationally, we're, we're expecting to see an increase in this already growing coalition. Hazel, what about in Cleveland? What are you expecting on the horizon? Um, right to counsel specific to housing is really just one piece of the puzzle if we're really talking about providing safe, decent, affordable housing. Um, and if we're really serious as a community to address racial disparities that really has like just gotten further deeper and deeper because of the pandemic. 
Um, and so I think if we're, if we're talking about housing and, and looking at it through the lens of systemic racism, that's really just one piece of the puzzle. Um, my hope is that we will continue to expand the movement, um, that it won't be as narrow, at least for purposes of Cleveland, um, and that it'll expand so that more people can access it, um, but that it's really just one piece of addressing um, our you know, racial um, disparities and, and if we're serious about um, affording people the right to, to stable housing, then we, it's just part of the puzzle. Well, in five years time, I'm looking forward to having you three back on again uh, to find out what actually happens to the right to civil counsel, uh, both in Cleveland and across the country. With that, I, though, I'd like to say, thank Hazel, John, and Catherine for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed today, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.